the FT Weekend Podcast, supported by Ledger, the secure way to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto. From beginner to an expert trader, Ledger has everything you need to buy and grow your crypto securely, all in one place. Reclaim power over your money. Learn more at ledger.com. Have you seen that new movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once? If you haven't, just bear with me as I try to describe it. Mrs. Wang, are you with us? I am paying attention. It's about a Chinese-American family who own a laundromat and who are bad at communicating with each other. I can see where this story is going. It does not look good. But there are also multiple versions of them that exist in multiple universes. There's an evil anti-hero. There's a lot of kung fu. The characters switch easily between Chinese and English. It's complicated. But this film is killing it at the box office. So far, it's brought in more than $35 million in the U.S. And usually, movies draw viewers when they're first released, and then they slowly peter out. But this one has actually gained momentum. This week, it jumped in the box office, and that's six weeks in. That almost never happens. So we invited the film's directors, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, into the studio. And I asked them how they define their movie. It's about a, a Chinese immigrant mother who is trying to survive the chaos of modern life, um, who then gets pulled into the multiverse, which uh, you know becomes mm-hmm. a metaphor for that chaotic life that we're all trying to move through and exist in. That's Daniel Kwan speaking. Together, he and Daniel Scheinert are known as Daniels, or The Daniels. Here's another take on what this movie is about, this time with commentary from Daniel Scheinert. It's a family drama that gets interrupted by a sci-fi film that gets sidetracked by a romance that gets undercut by... Um, an absurdist comedy. An absurdist comedy. And then it yeah. becomes this blender of narratives, uh, like a beautiful smoothie or gazpacho of a film mm-hmm. um, where... Uh, <laughs> a cosmic gumbo. A cosmic gumbo, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Was the question, uh, please give a short summary? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Did we nail it? laughs> the Daniels have also been getting rave reviews from critics. The New York Times, Vulture, Rolling Stone, they all loved it. And this is only their second feature. Somehow, with everything everywhere all at once, these two young filmmakers have managed to create something strangely perfect for our anxious times. Today, I talk with the Daniels about their film. It's out now in the U.S., and it opens on May 13th in the U.K. Then I speak with the FT's Leah Lewis and Ari Segura about Japan's succession problem. Japan runs on its small and medium-sized businesses. Many of them are family-owned. But the children who are meant to inherit these businesses, they don't want them. And it's causing a crisis. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. To understand the story behind Everything Everywhere All at Once, it helps to know that the Daniels are best known for the music videos that they made in the 2010s. They worked with a wide array of pretty big names, from rapper Lil Jon for Turn Down For What, to the indie rock band The Shins. These videos, they never had anyone singing in them. They were little surreal universes, like little short films with families fighting or middle-aged people hip-thrusting. Then, in 2016, they came out with their only other full-length film. It was called Swiss Army Man. 
Could I pass that one to you? Yeah, it's just a real simple feature film about a lonely man who discovers a corpse with uh, powerful farts and rides them across the ocean to escape a deserted island to freedom as beautiful music plays. And that's the first five minutes. And it's kind of like a... <laughs> and it gets even weirder from there. Yeah, it's yeah. like a existential buddy film about a man and his corpse best friend. And we like to call it a fart drama. Because yeah. genuinely... Our goal was, could we make people cry from a fart? Um, and we succeeded <laughs> with some people. So the Daniels have always been ambitious. But how did they go from making a bunch of slapstick fart stuff, however deliberate, to making this emotionally nuanced film about familial love? Some of it was the cast. The cast is exceptional. It includes Michelle Yeoh, an actual kung fu movie star. It has Jamie Lee Curtis. Kihi Kwan is in it, too. You might remember him from The Goonies. Stephanie Hsu, who plays May on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, she's the daughter Joy. But I wanted to know what else went into it. I guess from the part that you started thinking about this as one film and not a bunch of ideas and started to sort of define what you wanted this film to be in the beginning um, to what the film became, how did it change? How did the puzzle fit together? Like, were you throwing ideas at the wall and then you found a cohesive theme. What was that process? Mm. Yeah, we're, uh, our process is pretty messy. We throw a lot at the wall and, and a lot changes. Um, but really we kind of started with just a multiverse adventure of sorts. And we loved the idea that the protagonist would be our parents' age. Uh, yeah. And kind of like our parents got sucked into one of our movies. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things about what makes that so special within the context of the multiverse is the, you know, the multiverse is, is a beautiful and terrifying vessel for you to explore um, regret and just the questions of, of, of what if. And uh, we knew that if we put someone our own age, someone who was 20 or 30 years old into that premise, it wouldn't be quite as powerful as someone who has lived a fuller life, who, who has had many more years to ponder that question of what if. Um, mm -hmm. And then, Adjacent to that, another wonderful parallel was when we realized that the whole immigrant story is 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 kind of already a multiverse story because you exist in three or four worlds. You you exist in the world of your of your family. You live you exist in the world of the new um, country that you've moved to, and then when you have kids, your your kids have this other hybrid world, this third world that exists in neither of those places. And um, the more we dug into um, that collision of, of narratives, the, the more uh, fruitful and exciting it was. And so we just kept chasing that. We kept chasing a way to turn this incredibly massive idea into something very, very personal. Mm. I've heard the movie compared to so many things like The Matrix and Kung Fu movies, but I left it feeling like it reminded me so much of Sliding Doors, that 1998 mm -hmm. romantic of comedy. Mm -hmm. And I, you were talking about that what if moment. I mean, the reason that sliding doors is like, so in the ethos is that that question is in so many people's minds all the time. Like, what if I hadn't gotten on that train? What are all the paths my life could have taken? Why was that interesting to you? I think now, I, I know people have always asked that question, you know, in every moment in history, I feel like people have always asked, you know, what if? Um, yeah. But I think right now, the reason why it's really ringing true again having another moment is because the internet almost makes you um, that much closer to all those possibilities because we are constantly seeing other um, 
I guess, like proxy humans living out different versions of what could have been our lives. Yeah. When I um, go on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook and I see my classmates and where they are in their lives, um, knowing that we all came from the same town, that's like one version of it. And when I see family members and cousins who, you know, came from the same blood as me, and, and all the lives they're living, it's, you know, that's another version of it. But um, we we are just constantly being fed these narratives of other people's lives that feel in some ways so foreign and so distant, but at the same time, something that like could have been for better or for worse. You know, sometimes we pine for it and sometimes we're grateful that we're, we don't have right. that life or whatever. Even though the movie never really mentions the internet once, it, it's very much fueled by this strange existence we have right now where we are our, our lizard brains are trying to keep up with you know infinite technology that is weird yeah. we never mentioned the internet but the internet totally inspired the movie right yeah but i, totally. I mean you, you don't even need to mention it because i yeah. think people even if people we don't, all know yeah you, you can feel it i want you know our my producer tofer said go into this film blind like don't read anything about it don't watch anything about it um, before you go. And so it was a real journey. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was really cool. Like, you know, there were so many genres in this one film and I just trusted you. I let go of the reins and I just trusted you that you were just going to bring me, even when things got chaotic or weird, that like we were going somewhere. And I'm sure there were a lot of very deliberate choices you made to be able to pull that off because I left loving it. And mm. so many people left loving it. So I'm curious, like, what were the internal rules of your movie? Did you have rules for when you switched genres? Like, were there things that mattered to get right and didn't matter if they were right or wrong? Just, like, mm-hmm. how did we trust you so much? How did you pull that out? Wow, thank you. Uh, first of all, it sounds like you had the ideal experience going in blind. <laughs> and then the fact that you were able to let go at a certain let go, point. I, I, think, I think the people who really... Um, don't connect with the film are the ones who like are stubbornly holding on the whole time trying to you know reason with the film when the film does not want to be reasoned with which again is it's kind of a uh, you know the point of the movie too is like sometimes you have to let go to the chaos of our existence and it's like going on a roller coaster and just like stiffening all your muscles as you go around the bends you know (laughs) it's like i refuse to yeah moved by this and then the next day you you throw out your back yeah exactly um and so um yeah it was very much um, a conscious decision to make sure that the audience member always felt like they were in good hands. Yeah, it's hard to like pin down like the rules. Like we we talked a ton about rules, but then at the, at the end of the day, it was just a constant conversation about how we wanted the audience to feel each scene and to constantly mm. ask ourselves, you know, how far have we pushed them out of their comfort zone and is that too far, you know? But also right. like if we made the rules too clear and too consistent, then we couldn't get to where we were trying to get to, you know, which is like eventually we knew we wanted the audience to to let go of the reins and and have to surrender to the absurdity of infinity. Right. Um, there were a lot of moments, <laughs> a lot of discussions where we had to figure out the difference between confusing in a good way versus confusing in a bad way. Yeah. We actually sometimes had to make things even more confusing to help the audience understand that they're supposed to be confused, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Is there an example there's a scene where uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is fighting Michelle Yeoh uh, somewhat early in the movie, and we were struggling with how to do the leaps from universe to universe, and then we gave them abrasively different music in each universe, <laughs> right. and it's, yeah. and something suddenly clicked, where it's like, it gave you permission to be like, for the audience to be like, oh, this is supposed to be... This whiplash is intentional, whiplash. and I'm feeling it. Mm. Yeah. yeah, to just be like, sentimental music and horror music, you know? 
I won't describe the many different universes that you see in the movie because I don't want to spoil it. But I did ask the Daniels to tell me about a couple of universes that didn't make it in. We have a really obnoxious one. It never even made it into a draft. A lot of our times early on, we just try to make each other laugh. And then if we laugh, that's part one. And then we're like, is there anything deeper to that? Is that worth shooting? And sometimes the answer is no. And then that doesn't make it into the <laughs> script. Uh, so there was one universe where uh, we communicate through silences instead of through uh, sounds. So like um, mm-hmm. the bass layer is constant sound. So it would just be like, in this universe, everybody would just stand around going, ha, <laughs> And like, so we thought like you might visit, go to a wedding or a funeral and it's just like a hundred people all just going, ha. Um, While the person on stage is giving a eulogy crying, but silent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very confusing. High concept. Doesn't make, really work. Didn't make the cut. Yeah. yeah. To me though, the most poignant scenes are about family. There's one scene in particular that a lot of reviewers are commenting on, and it really stuck with me, too. It's the scene between Joy, the daughter, and Michelle Yeoh's character, Evelyn. There's a moment at the start where she looks at uh, her daughter, Joy, and she looks like she's about to say, I love you. And instead, she says, you're getting fat. Mm-hmm. And I, I just like, I think I felt a gut punch in the theater from every child of an immigrant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm curious about that moment if you have any stories of that moment what that moment was about to you yeah i mean you you kind of alluded to the fact that it, it, <laughs> it it's a very um familiar um experience for people who, who yeah who are the children of immigrants um and it's, it's very interesting to watch the the film in a uh, mixed crowd for lack of a better word where there's some people who you know my, my wife for example has very loving parents and mm-hmm. so something like saying you're, you're you're looking fat. You should eat healthier. Is is like so cruel and also very funny. And so some people will laugh at that moment, laugh or gasp or go like, "Oh, yeah, exactly." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you know the other half of the audience, the the, the children of immigrants, can like feel it and they they understand the um, the strange way that that line can both be cruel and loving at the same time. I think mm-hmm. um, one of the things that we wanted to get across with the film is is those moments are the way in which our immigrant parents show our love um, or show their love to us. They don't have the the luxury of of showing emotion and being um, romantic and being, you know, just having the full-on um, emotional uh, experience and connection that uh, most people do because they're so busy just trying to survive and trying to yeah. um, hold their lives together, hold their families together. There's there's just so much to do. And and so the this film became a journey of almost imagining another universe in which our parents were allowed to fully express themselves or they had the mm. luxury to um yeah to to experience these hollywood narratives of 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 a rom-com of an action movie of a you know all these um you know people like to point out the fact that our film is constantly referencing other movies and genres and stuff like that and that we're movie lovers but ultimately what what's so beautiful about that is yeah we get to see our immigrant parents experience all the things that people have already experienced in so many other movies and so many other uh, genres. That feeling of holding everything at once, um, no pun intended, <laughs> it, that's a thing that feels very hard for us to do right now. You know, that you can be good, but you can make mistakes. You can mean two things when you say one thing. And just because you said the one thing doesn't mean you're a bad person. You can want peace, but end up, you know, a violent kung fu hero mm-hmm. to get there. And um I don't know, how much did you want that to be a lesson or did it end up that way because of all the different things you were trying to do? 
I think it makes me think about like we've started self-describing ourselves as maximalist filmmakers while while promoting the movie uh, <laughs> and and yes. and kind of realizing that that's uh, a a unique thing as an as a storyteller to be like no that, we're going to do that like that's what we're going to try to put too much in and that's kind of our what inspires us and 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 maybe our skill set and I, yeah. I think like we did on a gut level want to make like an overwhelming movie for our overwhelming times, like a, a movie that kind of spoke to how we were feeling these days, um, which is kind of a little too connected and a little too yeah. sensory overloaded. Um, and somehow while making it give ourselves like a vocabulary for some useful tools w- when we're feeling that way. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that you're responding to and, and, and one of the things that we are, we are reacting to as filmmakers is the fact that our animal brains are constantly essentializing, constantly uh, simplifying and trying to figure out what the easiest narrative is for everything, including humans. And so um, what that does is we are, um, yeah, we're constantly making each other small and minimizing each other in order to contain more and more information. Um, because, you know, evolutionarily, that's just how we survive is, is we create these mm. really quick narratives so that our brain can focus on, you know, quote unquote, um, important things. And um, as we get more and more connected, I think our primitive lizard brains are constantly going to be having to reassess how we um, look at each other. And, and this film is, is a, almost an attempt to remind ourselves of the uh, the multitudes that we all contain and um, the multitudes that any idea has, the, the, the complicated gray areas that exist, whether or not we choose to see it, you know? Mm. And I think in some ways unless we as a society understand a way to communicate that constantly to each, each other. The fact that we all contain multitudes and despite the fact that we are constantly being barraged on all sides with different narratives, we const- we always have to be finding ways to do the opposite of minimizing each other. Um, trying it's an to, okay feeling to have. It's an okay feeling to have. if you feel it. <laughs> and, and, but I think, yeah. I think it's something our, 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 we'll be exploring with a lot of our work, um, at least within the next couple you know, decades, if, if we're allowed to keep working. Um, I feel like we'll yeah. be constantly trying to play with this, this problem. And um, yeah, I, I, hopefully yeah. science, art, philosophy, all of this journalism, all of it will help us figure out how to do that. Mm. Uh, well, thank you both so much for being on the show. Uh, we loved your film. Thank you so thank much you for so having much. us. Let me tell you a story about a Japanese businessman named Tomoyuki Ohashi. Tomoyuki is a restaurateur living outside of Yokohama in Japan. He's 74. And for generations, his family has been running this roadside tuna rice restaurant. He inherited it from his father, and he's been looking to pass it on to his son. But there's a problem. Tomoyuki's son has no interest in the business. He went to university, and now he's got a great white-collar job in a nearby city. So when it came time for Tomoyuki to retire, he couldn't find anyone else who wanted to buy the business. And eventually, he had no choice but to shut it down. When we met him, uh, he was actually on the, it was the very last day uh, of of this shop. They'd been in operation for many, many decades. And he was waiting for them to take away the, there was a sort of uh, industrial freezer that he had at the back of the shop. I mean, enormous, but it needed to be taken away and sold. That's Leo Lewis. 
He's the FT's Asia business editor, based in Tokyo. He met Tomoyuki earlier this year as he was closing up shop. Tomoyuki needed help taking down this big sign, and he wasn't sure whether to call his son or not to help him out. So he was debating whether to call his son. Just couldn't. He could see this kind of, oh, I don't, I know it's going to be a really difficult conversation. And my, I don't think the son was very sort of handy. And so the idea of getting the son to help with something sort of physical was obviously a little bit weird for him as well. So, so there's a lot, there's a, just a lot of emotion going into that. Yeah. Tomoyuki is one of many business owners facing a crisis of succession in Japan. Japan is unique in that small and medium-sized businesses like his employ the overwhelming majority of its workers. And today, many of them are struggling to find people to take them over. The implications here are huge. 40,000 businesses a year are now looking for a successor. If they can't pass down or sell, they close. I know that uh, the idea of kind of succession issues makes very fine drama for the streaming services. Uh, when it's played out for sort of billion-dollar empires. But it's no less emotional when it's a debt-laden Japanese engineering company with 20 employees. Leo recently wrote a piece about this for FT Weekend magazine with our colleagues Antony Slodowski and Ari Segura. So I invited Leo and Ari on. Leo and Ari, welcome to the show. Hello there. Hi. Hi. We loved your piece, and um, I'd love to start by asking you to kind of set the scene for us. Like, people know Japan as an industrial and economic powerhouse, and that it really developed after the Second World War. And before we get into sort of this crisis, can you describe how small and mid-sized businesses contributed to that? Sure, yeah. Um, we often find that it's very easy when you're reporting on Japan and living in Tokyo to become a little bit too... Uh, Tokyo focused because you're right close to the heart of government and you're, you're talking to all the big organizations that represent companies and so on. And, and often the headquarters of giant companies, you forget that basically the small and medium sized companies uh, in Japan are not only the, the absolute backbone of the, the national economy, they employ something like 80% of people. The kind of flavor of Japan is, is built around these companies. So when we talk about, you know, the great food culture, the small manufacturing, the perfectionism of artisans and so on. That's a small and medium-sized company story. Yes, I, I completely agree with you, Leo. I mean, really, the uh, the driver of the Japanese economy is really coming from the regional areas. And mm. this is, you know, this includes from tourism to manufacturing industries. In the U.S. and other countries, um, I think... Big corporations are really the, the driver of the economy. But in, in Japan, family businesses have shaped the, the economy over the last couple of decades. Today, Japan is the third largest economy in the world. And the way it got here is by rebuilding itself from the ground up after World War II. As Leo says, it's about more than the big companies like Mitsubishi, Yamaha, Panasonic, or even our owner, Nikkei. It's about these little shops. They've had an outsized role in Japan's economy. And interestingly, their owners have had an outsized role too. That may have been good in the 1960s, but it's not great now. Many of these owners never shared how they ran their businesses. All that knowledge of where things are kept and how things work, it's just stored in their brains. They've taken on this, this almost sort of superhuman role in, the, in, in some of these family-run businesses where 
behind their back, they were sort of referred to as, as the, this Japanese word, kamisama, you know, sort of God. Yeah. And I think the idea was that these guys were sort of almost impossible to, to replace. I mean, mm. yes, there's a lot of sort of economic questions about whether these businesses can continue beyond their founders' departure. And those were really quite gritty questions about fractions of, of margins that whether or not the, the business would succeed. But also sort of at the core of that was this, uh, is this ever going to work without this particular person? Mm. And I think that in a, in a lot of family businesses, that's the question. It's about so many things, this story, but it feels partially about um, a country that kind of got too successful for itself. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think that's right, that it, um, that the really big growth phrase in the, in the 1970s and, and then into the 80s it kind of shaped Japan in, in ways that uh, we're still feeling the effects of, of that period. Um, good and bad. Mm. Uh, if you've worked your whole life in a small lumber shop, say, and your children have gone to university, you know that that was the great success of, uh, for that generation of, of of business people. Getting your children to go to university, getting them to be to, to, you know into white collar jobs, yeah, you'd felt like you'd you'd won the lottery. And so to then say to the guy or daughter or son that has, let's say, working an accountant. Uh, you know, those owners don't want to say, well, yeah, why don't you come back and, and, and give up the job that I worked hard to sort of help you get and come and join the lumberyard. As small businesses close, a lot of people are worried that the specialist skills that power them are vanishing too. Ari and Leo call this crisis a source of national sorrow. And they explain it with a word that's hard to define. Can you tell me about that concept? It reminds me of the concept you mentioned of um, monozukuri. Mm. Um, monozukuri means, um, you know, crafting something. So it's a, basically means a craftsmanship. But um, on top of that, it has this spirit. You know, monozukuri is, is a word Japan, that covers an awful lot. Mm. Um, you know, and there are actually there are TV programs where they focus on some very particular artisan. And perhaps, you know, in some cases, it's a skill that the implication is, well, this is really the last person who can make this particular eel trap made of reeds right. or whatever it is. And this guy's been doing it for his entire life. This know-how isn't just a matter of folk knowledge for something that could be done in a different way. It's also about the meticulous manufacturing of things that Japan depends on. So let's say you have an enormous, I don't know, Panasonic factory or, or, or you know, Mitsubishi heavy industries factory or something like that. You know, the idea is, oh, well, I can see those huge factories and I can see those enormous great sort of, uh, you know, robots making all these extraordinary things. And, and that is true. I and mean, that's a big part of Japan's success. But, it, you know, at the very bottom of all of that, there'll be some part that's actually made in a very, very small facility that will yeah. be privately owned. And there'll be a guy who's really good at it. And it'll come down to, you know, some little bracket or some little ball bearing or something tiny that mm -hmm. is completely vital further up the supply chain. There are people trying to solve this problem. In Japan today, there are matchmaking apps that work sort of like dating apps to match ambitious entrepreneurs with small business owners who don't have successors. This time has also been a boon to foreign private equity giants like Bain Capital and Carlyle, who are just ready to swoop on buyout deals. Some smaller shops are being bought up by medium-sized local companies too. 
This doesn't mean that no one is taking over their family businesses. Eri thinks that the values of young people are starting to shift. Some of them are deciding to move back to their hometowns and breathe new life into their parents' companies. One of Japan's top TV shows is actually about this. It's called Shitamachi Rocket, and it's about a guy who used to work as an aerospace engineer and then inherited his father's family-run factory. I'm curious, Eri, like personally, around the succession question, is it something that you or your friends have faced? Like, do you know people who've had to make this choice of whether to go into their family's business or not mm. to? I personally have one friend who um, decided to go back to her hometown after working several years at a big company in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. And she said that was a big decision, but um, she said she's very um, satisfied uh, with her decision because um, that that family business that she decided to to join was the the hotel business. Uh, the, traditional hotel called Ryokan in Japanese. And that is very strongly associated with the local culture. She said she is, um, she feels she's very much integrated in the local, not only economy, but like cultural side. These days, like I hear many people returning to their hometown to pursue what they really want to do mm. and including their you know, family business. So yeah. I think gradually the values of young people are changing. Eri and Leo, thank you so much for being on the show. And um, please come back again soon. We certainly will. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I've put a link to the story about the succession crisis in the show notes. Leo has also just written about how Japan's elders are responding to its falling currency. He and Eri told me that what they're watching closely now is how Japan's demographic crisis is affecting the country's economy and vice versa. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. If you like our show, I have a favor to ask you. I'd love if you could help support us by doing one of two things. One is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be amazing. Or the other is just to share it with the people you know. Tell a few friends or put it on your Twitter or your Instagram story. That really helps people find the show. Please also keep in touch. I love talking to you and hearing your thoughts on the show. And specifically, I'm curious about the artists and musicians and trends that you're finding really interesting culturally right now. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. I share a lot of behind the scenes podcast stuff and culture stuff on Instagram. You can find the links to everything mentioned today in the show notes. I also have a link there with the best offers available on a subscription to the FT. Great deals. They are at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Make sure to use that link. I am Lila Raptopoulos, and here's my very talented team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our assistant producer. And Breen Turner is our sound engineer with original music by Metaphor Music. Zoe Sullivan is our contributing producer, and Topher Forges is our executive producer. And thanks, as always, to Cheryl Brumley and Renee Kaplan. Take care, and we'll find each other again next week.
As the world changes, so does the tech we need to secure what is important to us. And if you own crypto assets, you need a safe place to store your funds. At Ledger, we provide a secure and straightforward way to buy, exchange and grow your crypto. Whether you're an expert trader or just starting on your crypto journey, Ledger has everything you need all in one place. Ledger, the place to buy and grow your crypto securely. Reclaim power over your money. Learn more at ledger.com.